0: I wanted to work abroad and everyone was telling me, you can't do this. You got to work your way up. you got to, you know, become an expatriate and get moved abroad later in life, which is for those that don't know expatriates, basically getting positioned by a company in another country. And I was like, well, I've already traveled there. I've already had an internship in Japan. I'm fluent in Japanese. I can just go.
1: You're listening to the Elevate podcast and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from James Buchanan. The test of leadership is not to put greatness into humanity, but to elicit it, for the greatness is already there. Our guest today, Hillary Korna, helps organizations leverage the humanity of their people to get great results. She's the founder of The Human Way and provides counsel to senior management on organizational development challenges. She's on a mission to humanize business, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes Women, and more. She's also the author of the best-selling book, One White Face. Hillary, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: So I know you talk about this in your book, but uh, I always find it's helpful to start at the beginning and you made an unconventional choice when you started your career. So what was your first professional experience outside of college?
0: Yeah. So I actually started my career as senior executive officer for to- for Toyota Ma- huh, for Toyota Motor Asia Pacific. you think I'd said that a million times by now, out of Singapore, which is their Asia Pac headquarters. And that is an office of about 350 people that manages 14 countries in the Asia-Pac region, which is the most important market for Toyota in the world.
1: And how did you get that job?
0: Yeah. So um, I was a total nerd. I was an overachiever, high accomplished human, was involved with everything in school. I loved learning. And when I got to college, I gave up seven years of Spanish to start studying Japanese from scratch. I totally geeked out. I'd come early for class. I'd stay late and I aced every one of my Japanese classes and I fell in love. Um, Part of my love for the Japanese culture actually originally came from my grandma who spent seven years there as the wife of a sergeant in the military. And so as a child, I always had this curiosity in Japanese culture. That uh, language class was the first time I had a chance to actually dabble in the language and that turned into 4 years of studying the culture becoming uh, a dual major in international business and asian pacific studies and being fluent in the language after studying abroad in japan and so that was 2006 prior to the financial crisis yeah and so obviously no one knew the financial crisis was coming around the corner except for some people right <laughs> but um i had no you know plan or Expectation around it, of course. But what was happening in the US at the time was that there was very much an idea in business school that you had to accept whatever job came to you, you know, work your way up. And meanwhile, I was a dual major, top of my school, top of my class in school, in my business classes. And I wanted to work abroad. And everyone was telling me, you can't do this. You got to work your way up. You got to, you know, become an expatriate and get moved abroad later in life which is, for those that don't know, expatriates basically getting positioned by a company in another country. And I was like, well, I've already traveled there. I've already had an internship in Japan. I'm fluent in Japanese. I can just go. And so I gave up about six job offers domestically here in the States and bought a one-way ticket to Singapore without a job. And within six weeks, I had five job offers. And the last one was from Toyota.
1: So you're someone who starts down the path without... Well, you know where the end's going to be, but you're not worried about where the path goes.
0: Well, listen, I'm a planner. So this was about nine months in the making, not to age myself, but this was when Skype was only audio. And so I had everything planned. I had meetings scheduled for when I got out there. I had about three interviews already booked for when I got out there. And having been abroad already, it was as simple as just, hey... You know, I got to get on the on the plane and get out there. And I gave myself a budget and a time frame. He said, if either one of these run out, I'll come home. But I had to try. And at the time, you know, there's a lot of audacity in what I did. People are like, who are you to think you could go abroad and work abroad at such a young age or have such a position at such a young age? But the irony is that the positions I was being offered in the States were really mediocre. And they were being used as leverage against me to say, you got to work your way up when I knew my value. And that's how I was able to position myself in a company that needed young, energetic people to do work across many countries that at the time the Japanese culture was failing at. So I was very valuable to them.
1: Yeah, we'll get into that because it's, it, well, I'll, I'll get into that. So yep. what were, the, what were the, some of the challenges you faced moving halfway around the world, fresh out of school? And how, how did you, it sounds like you brought perspective, but how also did you have to adapt?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I get criticized for the book title a lot, especially, you know, in in the last few years, people,
1: yeah.
0: I'll just outright say, I mean, people call me racist all the time. The great irony of it all is it came from my Japanese boss, who's about 65 years old in age when he said it, because I was the first Caucasian they ever hired in the office uh, in Singapore. I was also the first female they ever hired in Kaizen. I was the youngest in the whole company, and I was the only native English speaker, So on the outside looking in, it looks like all these things are being used against me, right? All these would be reasons that I would fail, but it was exactly these that were valuable to them. At the time, Toyota was trying to bring the concepts of Kaizen to the South Pacific and they were failing because you have these very homogenous Japanese bosses that are by far and away experts in the space of Kaizen in, in the Toyota production system. But they couldn't adapt to the different cultures. They couldn't mold themselves across the 14 different cultures that they manage. If anyone's been to Asia, you know going to Malaysia is very, very different from going to Laos, which is different from Thailand. They speak different languages. They dress different in their workplaces. They eat different foods at lunchtime. They pray differently. Like These cultures, we as Americans lump Asia as one. But it's not one. They're vastly yeah. different. And the Japanese were coming, leading the Japanese way, and they were failing. And what they were failing at was not the technical pieces. It wasn't the operations. It was the people piece. They didn't know how to adapt. And so I would say the irony is that the very things that were everyone else thinks were hard for me were actually what was great. Uh, the, the challenges came more so in stereotyping. Um, a lot of assumptions around favoritism. So people, I would get asked all the the time questions like, oh, so you, since you're from America, did you date a high school football player? And a lot of assumptions around my job. So Toyota, I found out later that Toyota almost didn't hire me because they thought I came with a man. And I was just there as the wife of a husband who was shipped overseas. And so it was near like this close, just a minuscule close that they said no because they were making the assumption that I was a wife. So a lot of stereotypes and assumptions around who I was because I was American, because I was a woman and because of my age that I had to to fight a lot. But over time, I just continue to drive my work forward and focus on delivering results. And that's kind of where it got to me to where I am.
1: So you talked about Kaizen and early in your role, you had to implement that philosophy to dealerships. Can you just explain to everyone sort of what it was and then what you were trying to do?
0: Yeah, so Kaizen, um, you know, we could have a whole conversation just about that. It's not, it's less of what I do now, but the Kaizen philosophy from Toyota, it directly translates to change for the better. At its core in the US, it's translated as continuous improvement. If you look at the Toyota way, there's two pillars to the Toyota way, which makes up the company of Toyota. You talk about values a lot in your work. Their two pillars are Kaizen, continuous improvement and mutual respect. And so the concept of continuous improvement really comes from the manufacturing side of the business of how do we continuously improve to drive better results? Seems pretty self-explanatory, but what they did that made that even more further deeper in the company is that they developed the whole Toyota production system. Uh, If you've ever read any of Deming's work, they actually came and studied and worked with Deming and they took what they learned, but then they made their own model. And that's what made Toyota really famous is on the manufacturing side of the business, is how they achieve such levels of quality is in constantly improving. Looking at waste, how do you reduce waste or increase quality, essentially. And so the the concept at the time was how do we bring these philosophies, if they are just that, to the dealerships, which is the sales side of the business. And that's where I was responsible for leading a team of about 10 people across those 14 different Asian countries to teach these dealerships how to continuously improve their operations.
1: So, so we might get to this, but I I sense a little irony because Kaizen is yes. really all about, and, and I'm guessing that this is related, but it's all about process, right? And mm-hmm. it's all about, there's just a process and you would think you need people to improve the process, but it sounds like it's a process that sort of marginalized the human aspect of it, right? It, it's about getting the system right.
0: Yeah. So people ask me all the time, like, well, if Toyota was so good at this, then why are people struggling now? And essentially what's happened is we took everything we learned from the industrial age and we applied it to the information age. And we created these companies that operate with machine-like efficiency. And Toyota was a part of that era. But now we're taking those same systems, those same things that help us achieve efficiency and productivity, which have been buzzwords for the last decade, and we're applying them to technology. But we're doing it so fast, and technology moves so much faster than the humans that actually manage it and run it and strategize behind it that it's creating these dehumanizing experiences. And so, Toyota, at its core, fun fact, actually showcases all of their internal operations for the most part, except for like, you know, protected IP to their competitors. So, if you go and you say, Mazda, all the time, visits Toyota's manufacturing plants. We had dealerships from different um, automakers come to our dealerships all the time to see what we were doing. We're like an, op- we were, I'm still brainwashed by them, like an open book. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, what Toyota knows is that no matter how much money you pump into something, how much integrations you have and how much software you develop at the end of the day that is not your secret sauce the secret sauce is how you treat people which is why the other side of the pillar is mutual respect and that's where people have fallen short and where I think companies in the west that have tried to adopt kaizen philosophies has failed is because they picked up a philosophy that comes from a country with completely different shared values just a completely different culture uh, statistic came out of miss from McKinsey a few years back that said 80% of lean projects in the U.S. fail. And this is why. Because in Toyota, when you go to do a project, the very first question we would ask ourselves, how does this improve the lives of either our employees or our customers? Then, as a result, what's the process that needs to change? What did the West do? We took it and we said, oh, how can this help us cut costs or increase quality?
1: It's very Taylorism sort of approach, right? I think that's it. Like we've taken this assembly line uh, approach to people. I can see that.
0: Yeah, and now it's happened so fast that we're almost dumbfounded by it. We're like slapped around. And you see these situations happen where they say, you know, oh, the system won't let me do that. And we're triangulating ourselves between system, process owner, and the very system that they're using as if the system's a person. And that's the problem is we flipped on its head what is actually the core fundamental reason why we're doing what we're doing to make it about how it benefits the company rather than how it benefits the person.
1: Interesting. And
0: that's why I believe companies who take an approach of software first are inherently flawed.
1: So you don't believe in holacracy? No. <laughs> that's good. Go ahead on a limb there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think p- companies that are going full in, and this is the big risk post-COVID, yeah. is... Everyone's pushing digital information, uh, innovation and transformation, right? How do you digitize your processes? But be very cautious because that's what happens when we end up receiving emails. And we've all been in those shoes where we receive an email and you can tell it's an automated email. You can tell it's full of corporate jargon. You can tell it's straight out of predictable sales, predictable revenue.
1: Yeah, During COVID, you know, during May, I would get all these sales automation emails and they would just insert at the beginning, dear X, I hope you and your family are safe. Now, have you been thinking about how you could, I'm like, this is like the worst than not send. I mean, it's just terrible automation. It's just like by inserting that sentence, it doesn't make your 90 degree turn uh, the other way any better.
0: No, and one of the one of the tactics we use very often in the human way is using original language. So every time you see a canned response, ask yourself, how can we say that in the way our company would say it? So instead of looking forward to meeting you or talking to you, all these canned responses, how can you say it in line with the way your company would say it, as if your company was a human? Yeah. And that's when people start to notice. People ask me all the time, oh, okay, great, Hillary, how can I use this to capture attention? How can I use this to capture attention? Everyone is lacking attention, Right. And I say, well, first of all, you're asking the wrong question. What you need to say is, you know, how does this improve the lives of the person going through the experience? Then you'll capture their attention. (laughs) But capturing their attention is the benefit of the company, not the benefit of them. And using original language is one of the ways you can do that.
1: So somewhere along the way, uh, you had a pretty big episode of of burnout. So what, what happened and how did you get through it? And what did you vow to do differently?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously it doesn't come as a surprise. I'm a bit of a workaholic. (laughs) I would have never said that years ago.
1: You're very B-type, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) I I love what I do. I am very passionate about what I do. And I find that we shouldn't do... One of my favorite quotes is, um, let the beauty you love be what you do. And um, I find that otherwise, like, why are we doing this? You know? Why are we doing this if you're not having fun? Why are you doing this if you don't enjoy it? And obviously, that's a question a lot of people ask after COVID. But naturally, I become a workaholic over the years. And although you know my list of accomplishments have a great amount of credibility to them and lend a great amount of meaning to me and my legacy, a few years ago, I found out at a very, very young age of uh, 31, that I had a thyroid issue, and that really changed everything because it directly affected fertility. It affected my mood. Um, I was having brain fog during the day. I didn't know why. I'm a very energetic person, as you can tell, and I became very apathetic, which is very unlike me. And I found out that I had an issue, an issue regarding uh, thyroid and um, genetics. So I started tackling that. But long story short, I think the biggest learning at the end has been I get a great sense of meaning out of my work. And I totally identified with my work. And in doing so, the question I had to pose myself is like, who am I without my work? And yeah. I think as entrepreneurs, we don't we don't have a lot on the other side of that. Yeah. And I realized that I was working as a means to garner my own self-worth And to prove to the world that, you know, I could be who everyone told me not to. When I decided to go to Singapore, I can count on one hand how many people said, yes, go. Everyone else said, you're crazy. The dean of the business school at my university was so upset with me. Now he brings me back to campus once a year to speak, right? No one wants to be a part of your struggles. They want to be a part of your successes. (sighs) And so... I get a lot of affirmation from my work and I had to really ask myself, can I, can I be validated in myself and can I be enough without my work? Mm. And that's what, how I've been healing my burnout.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So let's shift to your current work um and i'm sure that that helped you the human way so what what was the genesis of the human way and how did you develop your kind of thinking or framework around that
0: yeah predominantly coming back from this to the states from asia um i saw everyone asking for the same thing but they were asking for it not the right with the, not the right intention so you know they'd say hey can you help me come reduce costs or increase quality but they didn't really want to do it for the sake of improving people's lives, they did it for the sake of improving the company, which is not wrong, but you're not going to get what you want out of it in the end because you're inherently flawed in terms of the sequence at which you're solving problems. Yeah. And so that's when you end up having these really dehumanizing processes. I know a company that brought me in after they brought in a Kaizen expert who worked with these six-figure consultants to improve their email efficiency. And these consultants were like, are you kidding me? Like, you pay me six figures and now you're going to teach me how to improve my email efficiency. And they lost like half of their A player talent. And so it's not wrong to want to reduce costs, it's just the method has been bastardized. And so um, over the years, what I found was people were losing sight of why they were really doing what they were doing. And what I also saw is The competitive landscape for companies to compete in this world is changing drastically. You have two things happening. You have a consumer base that's becoming more cultured, more informed, more knowledgeable than ever before. I mean, if no one knows what blind is, you should probably know what it is because it's an anonymous glass door. Employees have so much power and not even comparable to even five years ago. Customers have so much power. And so the question always becomes, why is my customers leaving me? Why are my employees leaving me? I don't think fidelity has been lost. I think the reason people are loyal has changed and companies aren't adapting to it. And so as these consumer bases and these employee bases are becoming more powerful, more informed, more choices than ever before, they have a sea of choices. Meanwhile, you have these companies that are trying to scale through technology. Again, not a bad thing. Technology lets us do incredible things and gets rid of people from menial tasks. Love tech. But tech is not to blame. It's how we use the tech. We would always say at Toyota, you have to use the right tool at the right place at the right time. A sword can be used to protect and it can be used to kill. And that's what tech is doing. So you have these consumer bases and employee bases that are becoming more informed, more powerful, more human than ever before. They're getting married later. They're traveling more than ever. In 1990, only 4% of Americans had passports. In 2020, 40% of Americans had passports.
1: That's a good stat. I haven't heard that one before.
0: Yeah. What does that mean? We're more open.
1: Now now that passport is worthless, but that's fine.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Valid. (laughs) That we're more open, we more cultured, we're more like challenging the status quo and questioning everything we know as a culture. And then you have these companies digitizing and actually like disconnecting themselves from the customer. They're like, hey, all these great relationships that we know, you know, relationships, establish trust, and we need to build great relationships to keep our customers. Well, screw that. Let's just put in automation because it helps efficiency, right? And so we're actually disconnecting ourselves from the very customers we serve and we're giving them more reason to leave. So this is what I call the digi-human divide. It's a great complex situation that creates a huge challenge for companies because for them to compete in this new era that is more human, more culture, that cares about social issues, they have to bridge this connection of trust that's been lost. And they have to compete in a way that's not just selling a product or a service as they traditionally would, but in a way that fights for trust. Because if you compete with product and you compete with your feature set, you're just going to run yourself into the ground trying to compete on margin and ending up being nickel and dimed by the very customers you serve.
1: Yeah. And you're seeing this, you're seeing people, there've been some high profile cases in the last year where, you know, companies did some bad stuff to their employees and and that's sort of, this never happened before. Right. And then consumers sort of said, I don't want to buy from that company.
0: Yeah. Look at Instacart. I mean, oh my God, I used to tell everyone about Instacart. I used to love Instacart. And for some reason they couldn't nail down the payment terms for their drivers and the tipping terms. And so right. I ended up not using them. I used to tell everyone about them. I was a complete evangelist. Now I stopped and they just, cont- it's almost like they're digging their own grave. Same with Uber. It's like they're digging their own grave. It's like they're making it worse and worse. Meanwhile, their senior execs can get paid out, but they can't pay out a couple extra bucks to their drivers. And the numbers just are staggering. In terms of, okay, you're, you're valued over several billion dollars and you can't manage to figure out your, your tipping terms. Yeah, There's a problem here. <laughs> Who do you really care about? And that's the thing is we live in a world where this stuff is more transparent than it was five years ago.
1: Well, so is the, is the essence of, of your work kind of the whole how they approach it philosophically or how to customers or how they approach the relationship with employees?
0: Great question. So there's four components to the human way. CX, EX, culture, and brand. Because what we're finding is in digital innovation and in scaling and companies growing too fast, they're focusing on one of these, but not all of these.
1: Can you define all of those for everyone?
0: Oh, yeah. yes. Thank you. <laughs> so brand is predominantly you know, how you show up as a personality, how your yep. character shows up uh, holistically as a brand and how you deliver on that. Uh, CX this customer experience. So that's more of the operations side. You can define a great brand. You can hire a sweet company, pay them a bunch of money to make this great brand guide doc, and then not deliver on it.
1: Yeah. And so
0: this customer experience is what is the promise that you're delivering and how are you ensuring that that happens the same way at the same time every time? Uh, employee experience is similar, but from the, the employee's perspective. How do you deliver on the employee experience that you're promising? And then culture is internal culture okay. and how you're developing a culture of... Um, one that's you know employee first. And so these four things are often very inconsistent. A company might get one really well and you know nail it out of the park. I was just talking to a client this morning and they're they're really really strong with culture and EX, but with CX and brand they're just super weak. So the inside everyone loves them on the outside there's a risk. And that's where you experience if you've ever been in those shoes I'm sure you have as a consumer, you're like, oh, I got sold to, and I had this great sales experience. And then they hand you over to fulfillment. And you're like, the yeah. fuck? This is like the most dehumanizing thing I've ever been in. Like they're just, you know, rampantly sending me emails. Suddenly I'm subscribed to all these lists. I didn't get added. I got added to this group I didn't sign up for.
1: I have a great example of that. Tell so um, I went to buy an infrared sauna recently. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, you get these in the mail, you put it together and one of the top companies is Sunlighten. Yep. Great reviews, um, like good product everywhere, premium. They have such an aggressive sales process. Like you, you get called every day, you get emailed every day. It is so car sales mini that, that I bought this other product um, just because they like didn't wow. harass me. And, and, you know, it was a little less expensive and, but it's funny because I would have associated, everyone says, look, it's more expensive and it's premium. But if your product is premium, then why the hell are you like harassing me all day? Like, amen
0: it didn't, it just didn't align
1: with the brand. Like, oh, this is our last day and we're running out. And I'm like, that's not how a premium company talks. I I actually just found the sales process so off-putting that I was like, take me out of all of your automated call systems.
0: Oh, God, that's such a great example. I might have to use it in the new book.
1: So maybe you can call them for... Uh, yeah.
0: Oh, I'll just use them as like a case study in the new book as a fake prospect.
1: <laughs> just go sign up uh, on the site. Yeah. Um, I just... I don't like being sold. So that was yep. a great example.
0: You know, someone who nails this well on the opposite side is Zola. And this is not just online companies, right? Um, Obviously, Sunlighting is a physical product, but they're an e-commerce company. So there's that. You know, merge. I truly believe every company is an online company right now. And something that's so crucial is your online experience has to match your offline experience. So, as a product company or as a, um, let's say, service based company, there's often an assumption like, oh, well, you know, I'm B2B and I'm in person. So, my online experience doesn't matter as much. But what people and companies often lose sight of is that your customers aren't looking at you as an online or offline company. They're looking at you as an experience. And they're checking out your social media right before they get on a sales call with you. They're you know, signing up for your contact us page as they're standing in front of you in the store. These experiences are not online or offline. They're very much integrated. And so it has to be consistent. An example here that occurred recently was a, a client of mine was... Um, assessing their brand internally as a company. And they basically were like, oh, wow, now that you put it this way, when our company's social feed shows up on IG, I don't even look at it. I scroll right past it. So if I don't look at it, what do you think our own customers do? And it wasn't showing up the way they really wanted to. It was full of corporate jargon, super cold, heartless, and sterile, which is the acronym I generally use for this, CHS. (laughs) cold, heartless, and sterile. So we've all had these experiences. It's it's rampant fire right now because everyone's been pushing tech and standardization.
1: In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet, no more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. So you and I are both big believers in culture and employee experience and, and all of these things. But, you, you know, I'll ask you this question because you mentioned this before. I think the power has shifted, as you said, more yeah. towards employees and more towards customers. But I think it's kind of a little bit maybe flipped too far. Like there is there is actually no expectation of loyalty from the employee. So in a company, in an organization now, I think a lot, people leave on two days notice and people are like, good for them, right? But when, <laughs> when the company then wants to sit down or have a challenging discussion or actually have that human discussion, say, Hillary, like, look, this is just not going to work out. Part of being human is having real discussions with people and having high yeah. standards saying, look, this isn't working, we want to help you or whatever. But it's funny, I, I feel like it's very uh, one way where a lot of people just assume like, oh, anything that the company needs to do from a business standpoint is is bad or evil. And look, there are employees that behave badly. There are people, again, give one day notice or, or stuff like that. And I think there needs to be a, a balance there. I think every, in some ways, People are going too far to cater. You know, they're too worried about Glassdoor or going too far catering towards, well, how do we make everyone happy? And that actually tends to, I think, lower performance because you don't deal with your outliers.
0: I don't disagree with you. I think the uncomfortable part is people have to get used to the middle path. Yeah. Employees haven't had power in the past. Employees were a cog in the wheel. I mean, look forward. Literally, you were a cog in the wheel. And we took pride in that as a society. We still applaud him. I make an effort to never mention him positively because I think we're over that. But people have been used and they have been abused for decades in the workplace. Yeah. And so there's an uprising occurring. And I think we're seeing that not just in work. We're seeing it in political parties. We're seeing it in social justice issues. Uh, We're seeing it in gender discrimination. I mean- with all due respect, men have been in power for a long time and systems have been designed by men. I mean, the only people that could own land in the United States of America were men when it started. The only people that could vote were men. And so like any, you know, pendulum, It kind of has to swing a little bit before we find the middle path. And so that's my only thing to that. I would say from a company's perspective, if you're looking to prevent that, I would be more conscious of your hiring. I look at employee experience just like a process. I mean, I'm brainwashed by Toyota. I'll never be able to think the same because I'm always brainwashed with operations. I look at it, employee experience, just like a process, like customer experience. Uh, you You have your recruiting, you have your hiring, you have your onboarding, And you have your retention or engagement, right? And I can provide this if you want as a uh, downloadable when we talk after this.
1: I'll add it to the notes, yeah.
0: One of the tools I use with my clients is called the Customer for Life Cycle. And we use it for employees too, which is the Employee for Life Cycle. And if you think of this as a cycle, a wheel, whatever analogy you want to use, a circle, it starts with how you hire. And just like in the manufacturing plant, what made the Toyota production system so profound was that if someone saw a problem in the operating line, in the assembly line, they could stop it, right? And so what does that mean? If there's a defect, if we let that defect continue on, you're going to create more defects. So we want to stop it and prevent it from happening. Same thing can be applied to the employee experience. So your problems that are occurring in engagement or retention are happening way earlier in either onboarding or hiring or recruiting. And so anyone who is having that kind of difficulty, I'd say, look at your hiring process. You're probably hiring for cogs in the wheel. You're probably hiring based on a checklist of does someone fill the role and less about their psychographic and who they are as a person. And do they share their values with the company and focus more on that than can they fill the role and execute on the job?
1: Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And if, right, if their last five roles are 18 months, then you're probably not (laughs) going to get them to stay longer than 18 months.
0: Yeah, that's valid. But you never know. You never know. I would also seek to understand because there's always a story behind those numbers. You know, I mean, I, I've been in situations, not me personally, but me seeing other applications where they had a valid reason for leaving. And so you might be the perfect fit for them. And you giving them a chance might be the reason why they actually stay longer.
1: Yeah, I'll split the baby with you on that one. I think yeah. people have some bad experiences, but prior acts, if you had five complete jerk bosses that just didn't understand you, right? <laughs> and there's
0: a lot of those out there.
1: <laughs> yes, but at some point then you have to start being like, well, how do you keep getting yourself into these same situations, sure. right? So I, I, everyone's had a terrible company, a terrible situation. But again, I would say, look, well, wh- if that happened to you twice, I would expect you to be a little more discerning the third time.
0: Yeah, I look at this a lot like history. You know, we have order, and then order breaks down, and you have chaos, and then you have a new reorder, right? And that's what we're going through in literally every facet of society and culture right now. And that's what's happening with employees. It's there. We're having a breakdown. We're in a state of chaos, and people are confused. They're rethinking their lives. They're rethinking the story they tell themselves. I mean, I just told you my story of like associating myself and identity only with work. And they're trying to define a new order. And so it's going to be a few more years of employees jumping around and being confused about what they want because life is moving fast. Technology is making it harder to understand what people really want. And so I think the more you can align with who they are as a person and do they fit with the company culturally rather than can they execute on the job, you'll have more success in retaining them.
1: So, so I'll be intentionally provocative because people ask me this, and I disagree with it. Do you think? Do you think cultural fit? You know, a lot of people say, yeah, "Oh, yeah," because yeah. yeah. I actually don't. I believe you have to have shared values, and I don't think that means everyone's homogeneous or a copy of each other.
0: <sighs> You're gonna love my answer, <laughs> Rob. Uh, do you go by Rob, Bob? I should ask this beforehand. Bob, yeah, it's fine. Excuse me, that was rude. No problem. Um, I think it's subjective, and that's why it's uncomfortable. It's not black and white. What is culture fit? You might share four of the values and one value is a little weak, but it could work on, right? And so I don't think it's a yes or no answer. I do agree that when you are hiring for culture, you should start with alignment of shared values with a conscious, conscious effort to push the boundaries of that, what you may not know. So for example, with my podcast, I just launched my podcast two weeks ago and I made a conscious effort because I know who I want to have on there. I've been dreaming about this for years. It's so exciting to showcase people that I think are deserving of it. And I had to make a conscious effort that for every two women, I would have one man because I don't think it needs to be all women. That's not what I stand for. Hello, I'm talking about being human, right? But I wanted to have a few extra women, more than men. I also said for every four because I've recorded them in bulk, I said, okay, I want to consciously bring in a person of color for every four guests. Because if I don't think about it, I'm not going to push the boundaries. Yeah. And so I think that's a choice a company has to make when they're hiring and hiring for culture fit is, okay, what, are, what do we want to learn more of? Where do we want to open the boundaries? For example, transparency. Do you want to push the boundaries there? Diversity. Do you want to push the boundaries there? CX. Do you want to push the boundaries there? Like, It doesn't have to be a social issue to want to push the boundaries of culture and value fit. And so I think it's just align with values and culture and then be open to who might make you more improved or better because of being different.
1: I agree. With, yeah, it is not carbon copies. You need shared threads. If if you were to line up someone and they were to be the opposite of all your core values, I think that's a disaster. So yes, I, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's a great way of putting it.
1: And, and that there's a company for that person, and there's a relationship for that person. But I, to me, that's like you agree naturally on the big stuff. It doesn't mean you're the same. And if you don't agree on the big stuff in a relationship or work or otherwise, that this doesn't doesn't work out. From what I've seen, no. <laughs> So you had a new book coming out, Unprofessional. Can you give us a yeah. little, little teaser of what that will discuss?
0: Yeah, dude. Well, here's the thing. I'll just come out there and say it. No one who is listening to this uh, is seeing my video. But if you Google me, my face is all over the interwebs. My mom one time was like, do you know that your face shows up when you Google your name? <laughs> I was like, mom, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> um, I'm young. I'm about to be 36. I've had a lot of success. I've worked my freaking ass off. I love what I do. And that's it. But I have a baby face and I know I'm young for my age. But the very funny thing about it all is, I mean, I got paid my first $5,000 speaking event when I was 25. I got sponsored by Toyota when I was 26 to travel the world and talk about my first book. I, I just have a weird story. There's no nothing... I can't dumb it down to make other people feel better. And what happened is at the age 25 and 26, I was dressing really old to try to blend in and to be deserving of the respect that people were telling me I had. Uh, I was wearing old suits from Dillard's. I was wearing pearls. I would wear this hideous makeup and curl my hair. I tried to make myself look old. And the great irony is the very things that made me great were not that. I'm challenging. I think differently. I am... I am bilingual. I, you know, I'm a practicing Buddhist. Like my my identity is very confusing. I drive a motorcycle. You couldn't make these assumptions about me yeah. being, a, you know, a white woman from Ohio. And so we live in a world where like, we cannot make the assumptions about humans as we did before. And we also live in a world where business is allowed to be more human than ever before. We're often very boring and we're trying to be polished and buttoned up as a way to earn respect, just like I tried to. But the great irony of that is that, like, you've never been more allowed to be yourself. And in fact, that's what people are yearning for because we live in a world that's very isolated and very disconnected and, you know, bonded through technology that's actually making us lose trust in one another. Some statistics that came out recently um, of a Gallup study showed that trust is plummeting across big institutions, military, big business, the medical system, et cetera. I mean, even just hearing that you're like, yeah, of course it is. And so the question becomes as a company, like, what do you do to build back the trust that's been lost? Because people don't know what to believe right now. And you build it back by being yourself. What is the identity that your company wants to take on? What do you stand for? You don't have to stand for everything. But what do you stand for? And how do you show that more rather than showing your product a way of deserving respect and being bought, but deserving respect by being who you are and showing up that way and delivering on what you say and delivering on your brand promise? And that's what being human means as a company and as leaders.
1: All right. professional. Look forward to uh, to seeing more. So speaking of professional, I, this is always a good last question. This can be singular or repeated, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you made that you learned the most from? <laughs> <laughs> you can have minutes, hours, whatever you need.
0: Well, what's interesting is that we all have different definitions of the word professional now, right? Mark Manson cusses on the cover of his books yeah. and he started a trend that you know, Once he did it, then it just looks like everyone copied him, right? And that's a choice if you want a custom business or not. That's a choice if you want to be unprofessional in your own way or not. And that's what I'm kind of really challenging is the very thing that makes you unprofessional is what makes you different. The mistake I've made in the past with, with my work has been everything that everyone else asked of me, I tried to be. I tried to be the Kaizen expert. I tried to be the process improvement woman. I mean, I would get you know these terrible cliche names like, oh, you're the process ninja. And I tried to be everything else everyone wanted me to be. And yeah, I made good money doing it for a while. But I always knew that wasn't me. That wasn't the value I wanted to bring the world. That wasn't the legacy I wanted to leave. And so here I was just using old content, You know, improving content there, you know, gets results, whatever, but it wasn't my original thoughts. And the biggest leap I've taken over the last few years has been believing that your thoughts matter and your original thinking matters. And I think that that's where people are going to be the most valuable moving forward is not in the skills that robots can do, but in the skills that only humans can do critical thinking strategy, writing, teamwork, collaboration, creativity. Because everything that the robots are being made to do, and they are taking jobs, they are doing it as we speak, they already have, will eventually replace things that humans do worse off than them. And so the biggest mistake I've made is not thinking that my original thoughts were valuable and trying to do what people were asking me to do when I knew there was something better.
1: All right. I'm sure that can help a lot of people. So, Hillary, where can people learn more about you and your work?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, if you go over to HillaryCorner.com, there's only one of me that is Hillary with one L, not two. Uh, I have a newsletter called Unprofessional. We share like case studies, things people are doing in their operations to make things more human. Um, we also share things that people are doing poorly. We talk a lot about best practices. That would be the easiest way to find me. If you're on social, uh, I like to say on Twitter, I'm the most opinionated. On Instagram, I'm the most personal. And on LinkedIn, I'm the most prolific. All my name.
1: That is a very memorable description. Right? <laughs> I have not, not anyone describe their social media like that before. Well, Hillary, thanks for uh, sharing your story with us. I, I, I know you're just getting started. So I'm excited to see what you're going to do.
0: Well, I mean, it's been a few years in the running, but now I'm I'm going all in, man. I, I think people are struggling out there. They feel very confused about how to show up in the world and how their companies need to show up. Uh, and instead of leaning into it, they don't know where to start. And so that's what we're doing with the Unprofessional Series, showing them where to start and how they can become more human to build back that trust with their customers and their employees and stay around longer. Awesome. Sweet.
1: Thank you. Well, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Hillary and her work on the detailed episode page at Robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or you've enjoyed other episodes, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and it only takes a minute. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.